0: The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your words are toil and occasional endurance, and now you do not bear with those who are evil, but are tested those who call themselves apostles and are not found to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing it for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yeah, this you have. You hate the words of the which I also hate. You he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. You pray with me, Father in heaven. Um. We thank you, Lord, that you had a plan for the church. Thank you, Lord, that you loved the church and gave Himself for her. God, we can't even imagine a world without the church. God, we can't even imagine a world without Christians. And God, at times we um, don't fulfill what the church was. That you're supposed who's supposed to be as a church. And God, we may we take this morning, O oh Lord, to look at our own hearts, our own soul, our own mind, and our own strength, and and to really see if we really truly really love you. Oh God, um, we love because you first loved us, and you are love. And Father, I pray this morning, O oh Lord, that I pray for the Holy Spirit, that they will do a work in our own lives, that they will hear only your voice, and that you will hide your servant behind your cross, and that they will only see and hear and and know that Jesus is here, and Jesus is speaking to Watermark Church. So, Lord God, I pray, God, that that we walk away from this place so, so in love with you, God, because you're so, so in love with us. And we praise in your name, Amen. Let me see that someone uh, asked wants to Asked a bunch of elementary age children this morning. We're uh, gonna start a series called uh, "You've Got Mail." Uh, Tom Hanks not here or Meg Ryan, right? And and this is a brand new series, seven weeks, uh, and it's a seven letters to the seven churches of Asia. And this morning we will go through. Uh, the Church of Ephesus, the loveless church, which is in Revelation chapter 2. And someone asked a bunch of elementary age children what they thought about love. Glenn, age 7, says, if falling in love is anything like learning how to spell, I don't want to do it. It takes too long. Regina, age 10, agrees. I'm not rushing into love. I'm finding fourth grade to be hard enough. Angie, age 10, most men are brainless. So you might have to try more than once to find and, and live in a, in a, li- a live one. Dave, H. 8, says, love will find you even if you're trying to hide from it. I've been trying to hide from the girls since I was five. But the girls keep finding me. Manuel, H. 8, says, I think you're supposed to get shot with an arrow or something. But the rest of it isn't supposed to be painful. Today, as we begin a brand new series in the church, um, in which we'll examine Jesus' letters to seven individual churches in Asia Minor. And as we move through these letters in the coming weeks, I want us to bear in mind that these are written to actual, literal, active churches who were gathering for worship. And one other bit of information before we get started that will be helpful for us in our understanding. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, uh, Jesus said, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars, are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are, are the seven churches. So when you read the book of Revelation, we, we will have to kind of go with a symbolism that comes with this book. And the lampstand, I want you to take notes, the lampstand symbolizes the seven churches. While the seven stars represents the leaders of those churches. Okay, so you need to get that in mind as we go through the symbolism behind chapter two and three. And the first church we will consider is the church of at Ephesus. It was likely mentioned first due to its prominence within Asia Minor. Uh, it was a big deal to to in Ephesus it was a trade market in in Asia Minor and the Roman proconsul residence was in Ephesus so as well as the temple of Artemis uh, or the temple of Diana which was uh, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world uh, it is believed that the, pop, the Ephesus had a population between 200 and residents it was a seaport city boasting great diversity in commerce and religion and culture. And emperor worship was also prevalent there, a temple constructed in AD 89 and 90 under Emperor Domitian, who was the emperor when the when Revelation was written. Um, if you see the next slide, this is the only thing left of the temple of Domitian, uh, because God hates idolatry. Uh, it featured this giant statue of himself that stood over 25 feet tall, Um, also in Ephesus, we see the tomb of the apostle John. Also, uh, in, um, in Ephesus, also Mary's home, uh, in Ephesus. Remember when, when Jesus was at the cross and he left the burden of taking care of Mary to John and John brought Mary to Ephesus and this is where she lived in Ephesus, um, Maybe someday you may have the opportunity to go to Turkey called Kusadasi, which is uh, ancient Ephesus. And, and the ruins are still so incredibly remarkable there in that city. It's one of the great ruins really anywhere on the planet. It was an amazing experience to be there. Um, the church was founded by Paul's companion, Aquila and Priscilla. And Paul pastored that church for three years. Uh, around AD 52, Acts 18 and 19 tells us the story of the Church of Ephesus. Uh, Timothy became also the pastor in in the Church of Ephesus, followed perhaps by John the Apostle. But by the time of his vision, John's vision, uh, while he was in exile on the island of Patmos, uh, the leadership may have temporarily passed to Onesimus. If you don't know who Onesimus is, he is uh, he was the runaway slave in uh, the book of um, uh, Colossa. It was in the Colossian Church. And uh, we, we see uh, this in the book of Philemon. Uh, and who, and after John's death, he probably care on the pastor and possibly he is the angel or the messenger that God is speaking to uh, here in, in the book of Revelation. So the Christians who live there in Ephesus face enormous pressure to participate in the worship of the emperor and at least 14 other gods. So the city was the center of a cult and, and magical practices. And, and there was even a time where uh, that the city was being converted, that all the, the silversmith, all the uh, idol makers got together and, and caused a riot that led Paul out of the city. So it was a center of paganism in the first century world. And this explains why Jesus praises the believers here in Ephesus for standing strong for the truth and, and resisting the false feature that was coming into the church. In addition, Ephesus had a large Jewish population which may have led to racial and, and religious tension within the church, which could have played a role also in Jesus' strong appeal for them to return to their first love. And see, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength is our number one priority as a Christian. There's no other thing that God says you need to do. Because everything flows from that. See, when we love God, we can love others. But when we don't love God, it's impossible to love others. And this is our priority as a church. So if you want to know what what the Watermark Church is about, you can look at this wall. We are here to love God first and foremost. Amen. Right. Right. And we have to love others. That's optional. No, it's not. It is commanded. All right. And we are make the disciple makers because that's a command of God. So let me give you, a, a five, uh, five point outline here. And this is going to, six point outline. And this is going to be the six point outline for the rest of the seven weeks. So let me give you the first one. The description of Christ. The, letters to the church of asia always starts with a description of christ and then it follows by a commendation or a praise and then it it come and it follows a condemnation condemnation then it comes out uh, there's a solution to to this condemnation and then there's consequences to this uh disobedience and and finally the promise uh of god so first let's discuss the description of christ Look at verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstand. So at the start of this message, Christ described himself as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstand. We should immediately recognize this description From John's vision of our majestic Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 12 to 16, it just gives us this nine description of who Jesus is. When John said, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. Verse 13, and in the midst of the lampstand, one like the Son of Man. And... It was clothed with with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. What a picture of of the Lord. It's not a crucified Savior in, in Jerusalem here. He is this majestic God. See, the Bible portrays Jesus Christ as the Lord of the churches. And since the church is composed of all believers, the body of Christ of which he is the head, Paul in Colossians 1.18 tells us, and he is the head of the body, the church. So my question for you, who is the head of the church? Jesus Christ, right? So if you look at our website, the senior pastor of Watermark Fellowship Church is Jesus. One of Olivia's friends who was looking for a church said, Hey, I couldn't find your church. And I thought your, your husband is the pastor. It says Jesus on it. Uh, It's actually Jesus. (laughs) And Jesus is actually the pastor of our church. I'm I'm simply his servant. I'm simply the under-shepherd. He is the shepherd. He is the head of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might have preeminence. So if you know who's in charge here, I am not. God is in charge here because he is the head of the church. In Colossians 124, Paul says, Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is, the church. So as the head of the church, Jesus has the right to tell us what is wrong. Jesus has the right to tell us what we should do about it. And Jesus has the right to do whatever he wants to do in his church. See, the church isn't ours, it's his, and he runs it. Jesus himself says that he knows everything about every church. This week, um, I was so afraid. Uh, it was like maybe about three days ago. I was so afraid because I, I had time alone with God, and and I and I asked Him this question: "What's wrong with Watermark Fellowship Church?" Oh, I was so scared of the answer. I was so scared of the answer, and I just sat there for a moment, and and I said, "God, I, I think." the verses that you're going to teach us this morning tells us what's wrong with the church. See our lord doesn't merely stand and look at all the churches, rather he walks among them. And this is so comforting for me and for us that Jesus just is not some in distant place just looking and he's actually here and and he walks among us. R- and And he examines each church from every angle. nothing escapes his notice. He is aware of of our every thought, our every intention of our every motive, and he cares enough for our present and the future well-being of her church, of his church. And he'll both encourage and correct us here in in these passages. And in other words, Jesus knows what's going on. There's nothing that he does not know. As we go through chapter 2 and 3, we will see clearly Christ's headship beginning with the church here in Ephesus. Our point number two is commendation. This is something what he praises the church for. And don't get me wrong, I, I believe that God is also pleased with Watermark Church. And and he tells us here in Ephesus, for I know your works, your toil. See, Jesus knew what's going on. He could he could say, I know your works are gone, your toil, your labor, your copos, meaning to labor to the point of exhaustion. This church in Ephesus was a hard-working church. The church were engaged in a kind of work that drained them, not just physically, but also emotionally and spiritually. They worked for the sake of Christ's kingdom and His gospel. They weren't lazy or indifferent. They were busy caring for the sick, sheltering the homeless, feeding the hungry, visiting the prisoners, including widows and orphans. This was a church most of all will eagerly want to join. And, and I want to tell you, those of us sometimes... Uh, as, as human beings, we, we love encouragement. We love a pat in the back. We, we love sometimes just to, re- for people to recognize what we do. But in times when we don't get the recognition that, that, uh, that we think we should get, th- there's a God in heaven who says to you, I know your works. I know that it will never be in vain. Because in 1st Corinthians 15, 58 tells us that be, be, your labor will never be in vain in the Lord because he sees it all. He knows what you're doing. He knows when you visit the sick. He knows when you feed the hungry. He knows when you serve your neighbors. He knows nothing is outside of his peripheral. And God said, and Paul said in, 15, in chapter fifteen fifty-eight of Corinthians, he said, be therefore steadfast and be therefore immovable. Continue to work. Continue this hard work because your labor in me will never be in vain. Aren't you glad that our labor, our service will never be in vain? Aren't you glad that when you host somebody in your home and when you feed them in your home, that that labor goes not unnoticed, that God sees it? And that's what's encouraging. Not only for their hard work, Jesus prays them for their enduring faith. Look at verse 2 and 3. I know your patient endurance. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. Moreover, Jesus praises them for patiently enduring various trials. The Greek term huponone, meaning light-threatening challenges or against seemingly impossible odds. And this church patiently endured it. Like I said earlier, they were dealing with idolatry, their refusal to bow to the knee of the emperor or to Diana. So the church found themselves maligned, slandered, boycotted, and abused. And believers in Ephesus were the objects of physical violence and, and social and economic exclusion. Their diligence is a sharp contrast to many people in the church today who think of church as little more than a theater. They go to church for amusement and gratification. And, and sadly, many churches are full of spectators. Our pool of people who just want to have a good time. The Ephesian church was nothing like that. Because they understood that they are called to serve and to expend themselves for the sake of Christ and His gospel. That's what we're called to do. We're to called to serve and expend themselves. Yesterday, um, I went to a funeral uh, with our brother Tim's mom and and I was just hearing the testimony of the children. Um what was um definite about um Tim's mom is that she really served her children and expend herself for the sake of her children. Um but yes, there was there was a a man two thousand years ago, and this man is not just a regular man, his name is Jesus, and and he served us and he expended all of himself for us and not for himself. The Bible tells us that, that he was so rich that in order for us to be rich, he had to make himself poor, a servant, so you and I could be rich. Um, this church is amazing. The third thing that, that Paul says in verse 2 for their doctrinal awareness, the how they could not bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles are not and are not and found them to be false. Lastly, Christ praised the church for their devote their doctrinal awareness. The church in Ephesus can sniff out false teachers. Two things are depicted here in their doctrinal awareness. First, they could not stomach those who are evil. Then they can weed out apostolic pretenders. They investigated all the claims of apostleship before granting their approval or or support. They were able to discern very quickly the difference between false and and true doctrine. They tested every spirit. In, in first John chapter four, verse one through six, he says, test every spirit. Don't believe everything you say. And I want to tell you here, don't believe everything I say. And I want you to check it with scripture to see if I'm accurate with it. Don't just say, oh, he said that. No, I want you to be able, God said that. Jesus said that. The Holy Spirit said that, not me. I am not infallible. I make mistakes. You know, the worst day for me is Monday. You know why? Because on Monday is when I play the sermon from the previous Sunday. You know how depressing that is? And you know, I hear myself and just say, you dummy. How could you say that? Because I want our church to be stable. And the only way we become a stable church is that if you take his word and you said, yeah, I got that from the word. I didn't get that from the preacher. I got it from his word. See, the church knew the implication of Galatians 5, 9, that false teaching is like a little yeast that spread through the whole batch of dough. Ephesians 4.27 tells us, do not give the devil opportunity. See, when we don't know between what's false and true, we give the devil an opportunity. His praise here indicates that they faithfully guarded against Satan's attempt to infiltrate their fellowship with false doctrine. In in, in 2 John 1:7, um, It says, many deceivers have gone out in the world. They deny that Jesus Christ came in the real body. Such a person is a deceiver and an antichrist. And if anyone comes to you or meeting and does not teach the truth about Christ, don't invite that person to your home or give any kind of encouragement. How many guys here have Jehovah's Witness knocking on your door? How many guys have ever had that? right? How many guys have entertained them? Like, hey, come in here, have some coffee. All right. Do you know that they sometimes know they know how to twist the truth and if you're not ready to if you don't know your stuff just say have a good day and shut the door. Right? Not hard, but shut it. Right? Cuz you got to be ready. If if you're not there if you're not inviting them in for the sake of evangelism, don't invite them in. You invite them in cuz you want to win them to Christ. But if you're not ready, they will twist the scripture and you would say, oh, you're right. All right. Paul in Acts 20, as he prepares to leave Ephesus forever, he issues this warning to the elders in verse 27, 31. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God, Pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which you obtain with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish Every one of you with tears. See, Paul was saying, I know they will come. And they're not going to spare the flock. And they're going to twist things around. And, and, and the whole goal is to draw you away from Christ. So he says, pay careful attention. Be alert. Remember what I taught you. The church took this warning seriously and carefully. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 and 4. Tells us the danger, right? That's what we are called to, to preach the whole counsel of God. Because the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will account accou- for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth. And, and wander off into myths. And that's why in, there's a call for us in 17 Timothy 2:15. I love the King James version for this study to show thyself approved unto God a workman that needed not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. See, for every Christian, in order for us to be to be able to bear careful attention, or to be alert, or to remember, we need to be in the Word. I've been saying this for the last couple of weeks that if you're not in the Word and you're not able to rightly divide a word of truth. This this doctrine, this, this false doctrine will just confuse you. In Colossians 3, verse 16, Paul says, we need to allow the word of Christ to dwell in us richly. Let me pause here for a moment. Are you more discerning today than you were last year or the year before? Are you studying the scriptures daily for yourself? Many of us... Look at our phones a lot. How many guys here look at your phones a lot? Right? A lot. And you scroll down a lot of junks. But how about if you just kind of scroll, just put away your phone and just grab this book for a moment? See, our phone does not give us life. You know, how many guys here miss the the flip phone days? Right? With your small screen and you can't do any scrolling. And there's not that much information except someone's number. I mean, I grew up with the latest thing I had was pagers and, and, and in order to make it look beautiful, you bedazzle it. (laughs) Right? And, 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 and and the point is, is that we scroll to so much junk and to so much news and we know more about the Kardashians and we know about God. And yet, here's the command is that we need to be in the Word so that we could be doctrinally aware and that we could be stable in our hearts. That we need to allow this Word to permeate and to dwell richly in our hearts. Because that's the only way we can know God. That's the only way we can love God. Look at verse 6. Yet this you have, hey, the words of the Nicolaitan, which I also, I wish that could, I could go first, uh, Give you a background, but in, in real quick, one minute. In Acts 7, they chose one of the deacons. His name is Nicholas. And Nicholas kind of fell off the church and then he started his own cult. And this is the, this is the Nicolaitans, okay? So, and in verse six, it celebrates their, their discernment when they took a stand against this specific group of false teachers called the Nicolaitans. They're this heretical sect who were known to combine their worship of God and paying temple worship. And, and the church fathers, Ignatius, Irenaeus, and Tertullian says they are lovers of pressure. They are committing fornication. They, they are unrestrained indulgences. They are the Nicolaitans. Today, our world is drowning in a culture of blind tolerance of sin. Sadly, Christians often have responded with a mandate to love the sinner but hate the sin. And there seems to be a biblical support for this position. You see, Christ never said He hated the Nicolaitans, but He said He hated the deeds of wickedness of the Nicolaitans. Nowhere does God tell us to tolerate sin, but to invite them to repent of it. In summary, the Ephesians church was doctrinally strong and, and service-oriented and their efforts is an example to all of us. And we commend them as the Lord does. But there is a problem. Point number three. This is Christ's condemnation to the church. Look at verse four. But I have this against you. Oh, I just want to pause that for a moment. This was so hard for me. As the Lord, I hear the Lord is weak and, and just this still, stillness of voice. And cause I asked the question, God, is there anything that you have against Watermark Fellowship Church? And I was so scared of the answers and, and he says, but I have this against you. Do you know that we live our lives in this way? Either God has, is praising you or he has something against you. We love the fact that, that what he's for and what he's for this church. and But we don't want to hear what he's against. But in order for us to fix what he's against, we need to know what he's against. And this is what God, Jesus Christ, is against this church. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. For every angle and perspective, this church in Ephesus looked like an exemplary church. On the surface, they appear to be strong and pure, uh, faithful. But the Lord's eyes are like a flame of fire, meaning nothing escapes His penetrating, omniscient view. So here in verse 4, Christ shifts from patting them on the back with, with one abrupt word, but. But I have this against you. The small Greek word Allah indicates a sharp contrast. And in the case of Ephesus, Very significant that you have abandoned, you have left the love that you had at first. The church had everything but the greatest thing. They had the correct doctrine, but not the correct heart. Duty has replaced their devotion to Christ. See, we could be doing all these great things for our community. All these great things for each other. But when we don't have the greatest thing, which is to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and all our strength. God said, I have this thing against you. The church erosion of their love for Christ didn't happen overnight. Like sin. It was a slow drip. You see, no one suddenly wakes up in the morning and and say, I don't love God anymore. I'm tired of Jesus, and I'm finished with all this Christianity stuff. It doesn't happen like that. It happens over the years after hardship, questions you can't get answered, trials that don't seem to have reasons, loss of health, loss of hope, loss of a loved one, and then their love begins to fade. I want us to consider the chain reaction for ditching our first love. Fading love for Christ is a precursor to spiritual apathy. And apathy is this precursor to loving something else. You see, competing priorities with Christ, which in turn leads to idolatry, resulting in judgment. And the good news is that Ephesus was still on the cliff. They they haven't fallen over, though they have forsaken their first love, but they are definitely drifting into spiritual apathy. They have not yet surrendered their hearts to something else, nor compromised to worldliness, But they are on the cliff of doing it. See, most of you here, I would say, I think you like Jesus. I would say that. I think you like Jesus. But but how many of us could really say, I love Jesus. With everything that I am, all my being, I love Jesus. See, most of you said, I really, really like you, Jesus. He asked Peter the same things three times. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And God is asking you this morning, do you love me? And most of us will say, I really, really really like you, Jesus. And Jesus said, do you love me? Because if you love me, you will obey my commandments. That's how we know that we love God. God. You can't simply say with your words or with your tongue, hey, I love God, and not show anything for it. God says, if you love me, obey my commandments. But if you don't read your Bible, how would you know his commandments? You won't. So you can't love him because you can't love someone you don't know. So he say, God, I love you. And then you said, God, and then I need to be in your word because in your word I will see your commandments. And in your word I will say, I will do that because I love you. But when we say, I just like you, you won't even read anything. You won't even know any of his commandments. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, this passage says, We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard. So that we do not drift away. And that's my fear. That some of you are drifting away from your faith. How do we know that? I'll be honest with you. When I first met Olivia. It's not. Okay. Don't get me wrong. it's just going to come off wrong. But but my wife loves me. Forgives me. So I'm just going to. When I first met her. I was like. There was nothing in the world. You still. There's still nothing in the world. Except you. I just want you to know that. And. 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 And, but I couldn't wait to see her. I, I couldn't wait to be with her. I, I would travel like miles to just be with around her, right? Because I love her. Right? I wanted to love her. I want her to love me back, right? And 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 it seems like this is. But sometimes, you know, we've been married now nineteen years. I'm not saying that we're drifting away, right? But I'm just saying this that if we don't pay careful attention to our marriage, that we will drift apart. Most of the people that I counsel who, whose marriage are falling apart, it didn't start like just this fast drip. It was a slow drip. It was a slow drifting away. Same thing in our relationship with Christ. When we're not in Him, we're not focused on Him. We're not doing His thing. We drift away from Him. And that's how we fall out of love for Him. Have you guys ever met? I met someone about a month ago. He says, you know, I've fallen out of love for my wife. I go, what does that mean? You know, I don't, I don't love her anymore like I used to. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was going to grab something and hit him, but, but it didn't matter. But he says, I, I, I want a divorce. This is a man who did not pay careful attention to his marriage. People said, I'm excited to be married. You know, I, 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 know, I meet some singles and they said, you know, if, if, if I just get married, it will complete me. You know, they do Jerry Maguire's, uh, dialogue on me. You complete me. <laughs> right? Uh, no, that's a lie. <laughs> Cause uh, the only thing that completes you is Christ. Marriage apart from Christ is no marriage at all. And, and Paul here says, I commend it says in Ephesians chapter one, verse fifteen, he says, Ever since I first heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere. And that testimony is no longer apparent in the Church of Ephesus. Their love has drifted away from Christ. Not that that, that the love were known for it, See, now that love that they were known for and they the, their faith is lost. Their effort was not enough for them to go through the motions. And Jesus wanted more than their righteous works and their doctrinal awareness. He wanted their love and devotion. And I want you to, to, to just listen to me. God is okay. Just, just say amen to that. God is okay. Okay? God is okay without you. Amen. Okay. Yeah, it's okay. Actually, sometimes he is better without you. Okay. I just want to tell you that God does not need me. And he definitely does not need you. We need him. And, 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 and God is saying here, but this is what I want from you. There's only one thing I want from you. One thing I want from you. One thing every, in every relation want from their spouses, from their children is love. That's all God wants. So if somebody asks you, what does God want? To love Him. That's all. In in Matthew 9.13, Jesus said, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. God said, I I desire mercy. I desire love. I I desire devotion. I, I desire this from you. God wants our love for Him to be exclusive. Because loving God with your heart and all that you are is the first and, and foremost and the greatest demand of Jesus from His followers. Jesus had this rebuke in, in, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. He says, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves a son and daughter more than me is not worthy of me. This is what Jesus said. So the greatest thing that you and I could give Jesus is you love Him. So my question for you is, do you love Him? Over and over, the New Testament emphasized the primary place of Christian love, love in the believer's life. In 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13, it tells us that there are three things will last forever. Say faith, hope, but the greatest of this is, say this, love. That's what trumps everything. This is a golden virtue. It beats silver. It beats bronze, which is silver is faith, which means bronze, hope. And winners every time is gold. And our love for the Lord takes presence over anything because everything flows from that. And this is by far the most serious and often neglected priority of the church. It's a sincere and an intense love for Him. Let me ask you. I know so many of you here loves God. But does it get more intense? Does it get more intense? Do you love him more today? Do you love him more tomorrow? That's what he's calling here is for this intensity. See, God said in 1st Corinthians 13, you, you, you could have tons of angels and you could do, you could even give your body as a sacrifice. But without love, it is absolutely what? Nothing. Useless. Good for nothing. Just as we need to serve, we need to work to fan the flames of our love for his son. We must not be satisfied with a cold hearted and robotic service rendered to him. We cannot allow our hearts to call towards our savior. The cost is far, far too high. And the message here is very clear. You turn back and do not abandon me. Where are you in this matter? Can you honestly say that you love Jesus with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength? Or have you left your first love? Or you have never loved Him at all? Here's the solution, verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Christ here points out three ways that we could swing a U-turn and restore this broken relationship with God. Let me give you three R's. Realize, number one, realize. See, and realize that we have fallen from the place where He wants us to be. And the teaching here is to remember. You see, it's easy for us to forget that in the midst of our service to the Lord, that our love for Him is the most important attribute He desires. That's what He wanted from Adam and Eve. The Ephesians had wandered from the roots of love, and and Christ is calling them here to come back, to make a U-turn, to come to your senses and return home your first love. Sounds familiar, right? Because Jesus in in Luke 15, 17. In the parable of the prodigal son. Illustrated this when he realized his hopeless state. That he came to his senses. He remembered how good he was. How good a man his father was. And even if he comes back not as his son. He will be accepted by him. See, that's our father. He said, I know you're messed up. I know you failed me. And I know you're not worthy of me. But I welcome you back with open arms because I love you. And nothing could ever separate you from my love. Nothing. Not your failures. Not your scars. No, nothing could separate you from my love. And this prodigal son came to his senses. And many of us here this morning need to come to our senses. As believers, we need to remember the way life used to be. The first step to going back to our first love starts with God and then with others. The remedy for Watermark Fellowship surgery is to how it used to be when we first came to believe. When we were excited about Jesus and about his church. And we need to return to that attitude. Maybe we should take a short break at this point and start the process of remembering. Do you remember when you, your love for the Lord was the most important thing in your life? Perhaps that was never really been uh, a part of your experience as a Christian. Maybe you have been taught to get busy for the Lord and the process you have missed him. God said, realize this, that all I want from you is your heart and your love. Number two, repent. He mentions it twice here. Repent and do the work you did first. Next, Ephesians need to repent. The Greek word metanoia. Truly repent means genuine change of heart and mind. It's a call to think differently about our priorities and, and start living like Jesus. You see, a new attitude must be the first step to authentic change of action. If we want to love God, we need to repent. We need to have our attitudes change. Repentance is a true and radical change, not simply a modification of behavior. I hope you and I will find great comfort that in fact that we are called to repent at all. Do you know what a blessing it is that, that God enables us to repent? What a blessing. H.A. Ironside says, To repent is to change one's attitude towards self, towards sin, towards God, and towards Christ. You see, no Christian can maintain his or her love for Christ because sin always infringes and diminishes our devotion to Christ. Even only momentarily and periodically. This is, if you ask me what's the... One thing I look forward to going to heaven is that I will have no ability to sin anymore. That I have no more ability to be offensive to God. That's what I look forward to anymore. I was telling Tim the a week uh, that I envy his, uh, his mother because she's in a state of being that she could no longer sin against God. That she could no longer offend God. Or fail God. She's in a state of being that all she could do is love God. And I was in the hospital and I said, God, you know, if this was it for me. I look forward to death. I do. I, I look forward to death. Not that I want to die, but I, I look forward to being with my Savior. As we consider the great heights of the Ephesian church from where they have fallen, it serves a powerful encouragement to know that the fall doesn't have to be permanent, that our love for Christ can be renewed and and restored. See, repentance is this desire after holiness, never never be separated. Spurgeon said, repentance and and desires after holiness are never separated. And, And so there's such a fullness of God's grace and judgment and his called to repent. And history does not tell us how, how the Church of Ephesus initially responded. I, I think they responded well to the call to repent, but perhaps there was a period of rekindling, but it didn't last. How do we know that? You just need to go to Ephesus and, and and look. Maybe we should take a very very short break at this point and and start the process of repenting. See, God tells us that we're we're so busy. How many guys here are just busy? Just busy? Just all out busy? You know. Like my kids are like the busiest people in the world. Like every time I tell I tell them, "Hey, how are you?" I'm busy. I'm tired because I'm busy. (laughs) You know that's that's constant in our home. And and I said, "Do you work? No. Do you cook? No. Do you clean? No. What are you tired of? I'm just tired." I sometimes question, you know, um, I won't say who it is, but uh, one of my kids says, I'm tired of walking to school for 10 minutes. It is just wrong and offensive that you let me walk. Where is my chariot? And because we're so busy that we stop being still. can Can you just take a moment? Just sometime this week and and just be still. Just stop whatever you're doing. And just ask God this question. Can you show me things that you're against me? Can you show me things how I could love you more? Can you just stop for a moment and just be still and know that he is God? Will you stop for a moment and, and ask God, God, search me. Oh God, and know my heart and, and test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along to a path of everlasting life. Just just ask God to search you, test you, point you, and lead you. And, and lastly, they're called to respond. Look at verse 4 and verse 7. The love you had at 1st we'll go back to that, respond with loving me first, and he said, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We need to respond. Lastly, the Ephesians were expect to respond. Jesus, says, do the first works. The text does not go into detail as to what the first work represents. We do not know that it is an issue, it is an issue of love. Perhaps the issue of loving others and seeking to win the lost people to Jesus are part of what he's meant by first works. This is a call to a total renewal of our attitudes that leads us to a right behavior. Jesus said in John 14, 15, that if you love me, you will what? This is the time for you to participate. Okay. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my Commandments, right? I'm going to say that again. Because he needs to hear you. If you love me, you will obey his God. commandment. That's how we know we love Christ. The implication here is that these letters were never intended to have a single audience or a short shelf life. They stand as a warning to all believers in all churches everywhere throughout all church history. This was just not a warning to the Ephesian church. It's a warning to Watermark Fellowship Church that we need to feel the weight of his words. Because in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, for it is the time for judgment to begin. Where does it begin? In the household of God. It begins here. And you know what? God is against Watermark Church. I'll tell you. I just don't think we're intense enough. To love him. I wish I had more time. But let me give you number five. The consequences of disobedience. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. God says, if you don't realize. And if you don't repent. And if you don't respond. God said, I will come to you. You know what I was scared of? That God will actually come. And he can. He runs this place. I don't mind him coming. But look what he says. But when I come, I will remove your lampstand from its place. This is what it means. He will close this place down. I had a bad dream last night that I came to the front of the church and my key didn't work. And then there was a sign in front, Watermark has closed down forever. And you know who signed it? It wasn't the building owner's. The one who signed this Jesus. And then God gives a reason why. Because Watermark Fellowship Church did not love me. I don't want that to happen to us. How do you know that God is serious? I want to show you this ruins. This is what's left of Ephesus. Ruins. That, that Coliseum was bigger than the Staples Center. It holds 25,000 people. And it's just in ruins. The whole city is in ruins. If you enter Ephesus, I remember, uh, and you go down the hill, or if you stay up where the, the library is and, and you see the whole Ephesus, it is absolutely magnificent if you just imagine it. But, but today it's in ruins. For 1,900 or so years, there hasn't been a church in Ephesus it's dead. Why? Because when God said, I remove it, I remove it permanently. And that's my greatest fear that if we don't go back and, and repeat and repent and realize that, that we will fall into this thing and, and there'll be no more Watermark Fellowship Church. So, so I'm calling our church to what? To come back to our first love. And lastly, let me give you the last one. Here's the promise, though. God always comes up with a promise. He's the promise to conquerors. Okay? Whether you like it or not, how many here, just, just raise your hand just real quick, how many guys here are, you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and person here? Just raise your hand. You believe in Jesus Christ, right? Okay, I want you to say this with me. If you do that, you are a conqueror. Just say conqueror. That's what you are. This is only a promise to those who are conquerors, who are believers in Christ. If you don't know, first John chapter 5 will tell you that. Okay? But I want you to focus on the last phrase in verse 7. The Lord's promise is, is this rich blessing to His overcomers. That if we overcome and that we realize, repent, remember, and that God said that you will eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. We will eat out of the tree of life. I don't know what that means. I really don't. But I know it's good. All right? Let's be close this morning. I There's only one application I want to share with you. Can I ask you to commit to a passage in memory? Okay, it's... uh. If this is an entrance to heaven, I know you would memorize it. But I can't say that this is an entrance to heaven. It's by grace through faith alone. But if there is one... I want, can you commit this passage into memory so that you can always be reminded of our need to grow in our Lord, love, our love for the Lord? In 1 John four nineteen, it says here. Will you say this with me? We love because He first loved us. We love because He first loved us. Man, you put that memory verse in your, in your category. <laughs> That's one verse. First John uh, 4, 19. And it says here, If anyone says I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, that whoever loves God must love his brother. Must also love his brother. Will you say it with me last time before we close? We love because he first... Loved us. Amen? Let's pray together. God, at this moment, uh, we just want to be still just for just a moment. God, you're asking us right now this question, do you love me? It's a simple yes or, or no. Do you love me? And God, as we look intently into our hearts, can we actually say that I love you because I obey your commandments. I obey, O oh Lord, the commandments to be in your word. I, I, I obey your commands to be in fellowship. I command your you your love because of your purr. I love you because of that you love the loss. God, all these commands are written in your word, and, and this is how we could express our not just our gratitude, but our love and our expression of our love for you when we obey your commandments. God, we could love th- we could love this way because you first loved us. So Father, before we even close with another song that comes out of our lips, even as we sing, God, I love you, Lord, and I give. God, can we say that with a a hypocritical tongue? But when we say it, because Lord, we can't hide anything from you. You know our hearts. You know very well whether we love you or not. And I want to ask you, and God's asking the church, do you love me? God, do you love me? God, I pray that we will be able to answer with all sincerity, that God, we love you with all our hearts, with all our minds, with all our soul, with all our strength, and our whole being. Expresses that we love you, so Father, as we sing, "I love you, Lord God," we sing because we really mean it. So, Father, I pray, O Lord, that you will increase the intensity of our love for you this week, and and in and the flow of that, our increase our intensity for the love that we have for others. And God, we repent and we realize and where we have fallen. And help us, Lord, to remember how we first loved you. And we praise in your name. Amen. Amen.